my vision and our vision as co-founders of HR Signal is to help more companies be better at retaining, developing talent, growing people from within so that we can build a healthier corporate America where people have to leave less jobs to get what they deserve and companies can spend more resources on developing their their people and less resources on hiring and turnover and recruiters and try to make the whole ecosystem healthier. Let's discover what people are building in the greater Cleveland community. We are telling the stories of Northeast Ohio's entrepreneurs, builders, and those supporting them. Welcome to the Lay of the Land podcast where we are exploring what people are building in Cleveland and throughout Northeast Ohio. I am your host, Jeffrey Stern, and today I had the real pleasure of speaking with Andrew Spott, the founder and president of HR Signal and the founder and chairman of Vividfront. Andrew originally founded Vividfront back in 2009, growing it to become the acclaimed strategic Cleveland marketing agency that it is today, with recognition spanning the Inc. 5000 fastest growing companies and North Coast 99 top employer awards multiple times over, all while driving success and impact for dozens of Ohio-based organizations and beyond who have worked with Vividfront. After transitioning from CEO to chairman of Vividfront, Andrew has shifted his attention towards his latest project, HR Signal, which is a venture-backed HR technology company based here in Cleveland, which he co-founded back in 2020 and has since raised $1.6 million in pre-seed funding for. The mission at HR Signal is to address the critical issue of employee retention, workforce planning, and of culture. High employee turnover often indicates issues within a company's human resources strategy, and discerning which employees are considering departure is often a complicated and challenging task for managers. HR Signal aims to mitigate this exact problem through predictive analytics by deploying a set of algorithms which analyzes billions of data points from public sources, market data, peer career path data, including hundreds of millions of anonymized resumes. Importantly, the process uses minimal internal data from clients to uphold the privacy of employees and to facilitate onboarding. I really enjoyed this conversation with Andrew, spanning his work across Vividfront to the work he's doing today with HR Signal and beyond, and I learned quite a lot from his reflections on it. I hope you all enjoy it as well after a brief message from our sponsor. Lay of the Land is brought to you by Impact Architects and by 90. As we share the stories of entrepreneurs building incredible organizations in Cleveland and throughout Northeast Ohio, Impact Architects has helped hundreds of those leaders, many of whom we have heard from as guests on this very podcast, realize their own visions and build these great organizations. I believe in Impact Architects and the people behind it so much that I have actually joined them personally in their mission to help leaders gain focus, align together, and thrive by doing what they love. If you two are trying to build great, Impact Architects is offering to sit down with you for a free consultation or provide a free trial through 90, the software platform that helps teams build great companies. If you're interested in learning more about partnering with Impact Architects or by leveraging 90 to power your own business, please go to ia.layoftheland.fm. The link will also be in our show notes. So I, I wanted to start with a uh, general expression of, of gratitude for for you and for Vividfront who have 
shown lay of the land great hospitality, uh, allowing us from time to time to record uh, in person. So, so thank you, Andrew. Jeffrey, you're welcome. And as I've said, our, our casa is your casa as well. <laughs> so beyond Vivid Front, which I have now already mentioned, and uh, HR Signal, which we'll soon talk about, I know you have had quite an interest in and exploration of entrepreneurship well even before the, these two endeavors. So tell us a little bit about where that inclination for, for building comes from and, and maybe take us through you know, some of your, your earlier initiatives. You know, growing up, I had a father who was a business owner, had a couple side hustles even on top of that. So, you know, in a household where um, he was an entrepreneur, uh, my mother was a nurse. I really um, had both models of sort of uh, being part of a big system in the sense of healthcare on one hand, and on the other hand, seeing my father take risks. My whole life, I've been an entrepreneur. Uh, even when I was in middle school, I was starting businesses and buying things and selling things and was really early to eBay and internet retail in general. Really, my my biggest early venture was in this space of services. So I had a business selling computer consulting, network setups, and computer repair, and selling custom systems. And at the time when I was like 13, 14 years old, uh, making 30 bucks an hour, it was like crazy money sort of compared to other people having $5 an hour jobs. And so I felt really the economic upside of, of entrepreneurship at a young age. And then moved into more internet-oriented businesses as, as time went on. When I came to Ohio State for college, I already had a nest egg from a few different businesses that were in the realm of, as I mentioned, computer service. I had a business selling um, automotive parts and computer parts on the internet. And then I also really did a lot of like side hustles, like buying and selling cars and um, importing you know, race components and reselling those and things like that. And so when I came to Ohio State, I had a nest egg, I had some money and was intending on starting a business. And so my freshman year at Ohio State, there was a uh, lack of online ordering. This was 2004. And we had the idea, well, initially not, not online ordering, but in fact, just getting the menus online so that you could look at stuff on your phone. Or really at the time, mm. it was just your laptop. And we built a Eventually, in the, in the ensuing year that followed, we launched it fall of the start of the sophomore year. Um, we built an online ordering system for restaurants. And so we actually delivered the online orders by fax to the restaurant because they didn't have you know, web-connected <laughs> point-of-sale systems and toast and tablets and all of this wasn't around yet. And so we would take an e-commerce site and generate, take the email receipt, and it would be faxed to the restaurant. And then they would deliver the order to the customer and we would you know, wire the money and keep our, our commission. We grew that business while at Ohio State and uh, myself and a, and a couple partners, and we sold it our senior year when we were graduating. So I had that experience at a young age, uh, really formative on, on entrepreneurship and starting things and selling things. And yeah, it's really a lot of what, what made me feel comfortable leaving college and, and you know, taking a, a career of, of self-employment. And prescient as to, to where the world might go. Well, yeah. And the, the company that we sold, uh, it was called Sloopy Menus for Hang on Sloopy. Um, the company <laughs> we sold it to uh, was later bought by Groupon for tens of millions of dollars. And 
you know, part of the the whole, uh, you know, internet ordering revolution. So maybe I should have stuck with it, but it was also fun to kind of start something and, and, and get rid of it and, you know, have a good outcome and things like that. So you, at this point you've built up, let's call it a, a confidence in yourself to, to flex and exercise the, the entrepreneurial muscle, which is an important one. You know, the, the, the first time founder journey is very different than, than the second time <laughs> founder journey. Humbly, I might revise that and say, I have the confidence to start things and try things, but I do expect failure. And, you know, uh, I started my marketing agency, Vividfront, uh, like 14 years ago in the spring of 2009. I guess maybe now we've entered 15 years at this point. The I've had people ask me, you know, er, earlier in the journey, you know, what's it, what do you have to do to succeed? And, you know, marketing is a tough business and client services, tough business. And I always say, you just have to get more things right than you get wrong and accept your failures and learn from them. So for me, entrepreneurship is about being willing to fail, learning from those failures and moving fast enough to solve the problems that you need to solve to succeed. And it's less about faith in myself and more about faith that these problems can be solved. I'll find the right people, the right team, the right vendors to overcome. Yeah, no, I I appreciate the the clarification there because it that that all resonates. But to you know to give you credit, there 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 comes a resiliency from from knowing that you can handle the the constant you know slew of failures that comes with the entrepreneurial process. Fair enough. Yeah. Well, well, tell tell us a little bit about the the Vivid Front journey that that you've been on. In the year between when I sold the online ordering business and and started Vivid Front, um, I'd started an e commerce venture in lighting and home furnishings. At the time, if you wanted to order a fancy chandelier or a ceiling fan, and it wasn't something that you could get at Home Depot, you went to a lighting showroom and you could look at a catalog. There might be some display units. You'd place an order. It'd be delivered to that same showroom. You'd pick it up from there or they'd deliver it to you and install it. It was a cottage industry. And so I saw an opportunity to bring um, sort of the e-commerce strategy to an industry that had you know, high-priced items, steady multiples, you know, 1.8 or 2x multiple on cost for retail price, so like 50% margin. And we digitized more than 100,000, I think 140,000 items into one catalog and built six different websites in e-commerce, uh, uh, e-commerce sites for different verticals or niches in lighting, like commercial lighting, multifamily lighting, residential lighting, decorative lighting, crystal lighting, whatever. We spun up the business, built this platform in its early days, Magento. We were one of the first people to get it above 100,000 SKUs. And then the housing market and banking crisis of 2009 happened, 2008, 2009. And we saw all of our revenue, all six websites go to zero one day. And with no orders coming in, (laughs) it was pretty chaotic. You know, we had to lay off people and cancel, you know, orders of merchandise, all of this. And I ultimately decided to offer my partner in it. My partner was uh, a gentleman who, who had a lighting showroom and had licenses for all of these different brands that we were selling. Decided to give him back my half of the company in exchange for the ability to walk away and, and start something, start something else. My calculus was that it might take a while for the economy to recover and that, you know, as an entrepreneur, that wasn't a problem that I could solve. It was a macroeconomic force bigger than me. So I was like, you know, I'm, I'm going to 
give you back this thing. And, and he ended up focusing on the LED portion of the business, which has out of those ashes grew a very successful business for, for him and his partner. And for me, I was able to, to reset and, and start again. What I did was email hundreds of contacts I had from my online ordering business at Ohio State. I had built relationships, not just with restaurants, but with bars, businesses in the area and nation and national businesses that were advertisers. And so I had a huge Rolodex, but I had a non-solicitation and it happened to have expired at the point that I was uh, leaving the lighting business. And so I sent out this email, like BCC to you know, a couple hundred people that, <laughs> hey, I was doing this lighting business, you know, housing market lighting, it's sideways. And so, um, you know, I'm available to help build e-commerce sites, websites, do brands, marketing strategy, media buying, design, um, whatever you need. I'm, I'm here to help. I need some work. Unbeknownst to me, in the way macroeconomics work, you know, housing and this sort of whole industry had 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 a crash moment, but the rest of the economy was was healthy. And so I got way more replies to that email than I could handle and immediately had to hire people to take on work. And I incorporated VividFront basically by accident to um, <laughs> build an agency, build an entity around this, uh, you know, huge uh, stream of work that I created by, by sort of out of desperation by, by accident. So that's, it's not maybe the best reason to start a company, but that, that is the genesis of, of VividFront. Wow. That's one of my favorite founding stories, I'll say, because I, because I, so often it comes from a place of, you know, there's a, a recognized need, a problem you're working to address. And, and a lot of the early risk is just about trying to ensure that that problem is a real problem. And, and here I feel like you've just circumvented the entire kind of discovery process and <laughs> in one swoop validated that there was a need for VividFront. <laughs> well, and I, and I think it was something I did knowing, I think maybe more subconsciously that, that there is a shortage of, you know, marketing design, technology, consulting, you know, people. So, you know, I, I think I know a lot more about the agency business than when I started it, of course, but, you know, there's persistent demand for fractional consulting and design and marketing and technology and, and consulting of just business strategy. And so, you know, one of the things that's been interesting for VividFront is we're going through another economic, macroeconomic moment of a downturn. Here we are 15 years later. Usually these cycles take maybe less time historically, but um, it's it's arrived on schedule, so to speak. And VividFront, sort of true to form, as an agency that serves both business to business and business to consumer companies, it's doing really well right now. It's growing while other businesses are shrinking or laying off people or having, you know, macroeconomic issue struggles. Uh, VividFront keeps keeps on chugging along, keeps on growing. Big testimony to that is the team, you know, but it really is also the type of business that can do well when, when, the, when the economy zigs, it zags. So you, you've spent the last 15 or, or so years building up VividFront you know, with, with the team as, a, as an agency, not to, to lead the witness, but you know, at this point, know that you know, you're focused on a, on a new chapter as, as well as we make our way towards HR Signal. What was the process for you as, as you've you know, grown this business over time and felt, you know, the, the inclination to, to start to work on something, something new. About five years ago, I 
began the process of trying to work more on the business than in the business. That meant empowering a larger leadership team to take responsibilities that I once held as as CEO and founder and instead trust people to do a better job than me. And so I've been lucky to have attracted and retained amazingly talented colleagues and coworkers at Pivot Front that have been capable of uh, themselves uh, growing and, and rising to challenges and being able to adopt new responsibilities. And so beginning five years ago, I began delegating and moving out of day-to-day operations. Roughly two years ago was when uh, the training wheels came off and I was able to really leave day-to-day operations of the business. And so today I'm more of a founder and chairman stepping, you know, into meetings or, or problems when needed, but, but really spending just a handful of hours a week on the business and, and the team leads it. You know, when you work on the business, not in the business, you create a lot of value in a company. It becomes not a lifestyle business, but rather an entity. And really during 2021, the first big year of the pandemic in terms of uh, economic growth and, and everything that sort of happened post-lockdown, there was a lot of M&A activity in the marketing agency, Marcom space. And people have always you know, asked, are you going to sell Vividfront? And, and my decision has always been no. And the reason why is because I wanted to, to give it to the leadership team that had grown to be the people that, that run it. And so the leadership team for free is receiving uh, over over a vesting schedule significant equity in the business instead of you know selling it to somebody else which would not be what I'd want to do for our team and our employees and our clients they run it and they get to have the profit share and the and the equity if it ever is sold in the future to you know enjoy and and to be fruits of their labor and we also do profit sharing and bonuses to to the whole team that's not on the leadership team at Vividfront and so that model I think is sustainable I think it'll allow the business to keep growing and be healthy and have the best interests of clients and, and employees at heart. And uh, that's enabled me to focus on my new venture, which, which is HR Signal. Which, which I definitely want to touch on, but I, I do want to ask one more question on, on, on Vividfront, which is, in my own personal experience, I feel like one of the hardest things to do is to relinquish those kinds of responsibilities. And, and maybe the, you know, the mark of, of really good managerial competency and, and leadership overall is is the effectiveness of your team in your absence and how well they're able to, you know, kind of run run the ship. How did you find the process just personally of letting go and empowering the team to to run with everything? You know, it it, it took a uh, it took a village, I think, to uh, to help me turn that corner. Um, <laughs> you know, as an entrepreneur, it was the first time I had really gone through this process of in the words of our, uh, we run on a uh, we run Vividfront on a platform uh, called EOS, Entrepreneurial Operating System, and it's from a, a book called Traction, uh, written by uh, an author named Gino Wickman, and we had self implemented it, I think, twenty seventeen or so, and it had helped us grow and helped us scale and double in size, but we had done a you know a, a sort of a poor implementation, we'll say, a half implementation. And so uh, a couple of years ago, when I was moving out of a vivid front to focus on my new venture, we hired the absolute best consultant we could find 
to re-implement EOS. And I think it was helpful from the structure standpoint, but also there was another voice of authority in the room, which I was paying to listen to what he said, saying, you know, Andrew, get the F out of the way and let the people you trust be trusted and and, and do these things. And so um, he shook me and and then our leadership team at VividFront, uh, they manage up and they're not afraid of telling me to, you know, get out of the way and let them work or, you know, ask me for strategic guidelines and then let them focus on the tactics within those those guidelines. And so I've become a better, more trusting leader through my own, you know, learning process of, of letting go. Hmm. I love that. So turning our, our lens towards HR signal. What is the founding story of, of this company? So I guess maybe the trend is another non-traditional founding story. I have uh, a very uh, dear friend uh, in Cleveland who I've had as a client as well uh, at, at Vividfront in different capacities for 15 years. He grew up in uh, a suburb of, of Tel Aviv, Israel. His family mother and father and siblings were uh, his, his children and, and his wife were very similar age to another family that lived on the same floor of an apartment building. This other family is my co-founder at HR Signal. And so he, his name is Sagi, uh, had this idea to take big data, use the modern tools of AI and machine learning to apply it to the data around human resources and the sense of career paths and people to try to predict when people are ready for a new job. Initially, the idea was to try to help recruiters to call only the people that were ready for a new position or sort of prime for that that next move and try to focus their energy on the best candidates. And so he had this idea and it was sort of just an idea at that point. And he told his old neighbors, his, his friends from across the hall about the idea. And they were like, hey, you've got to talk to Andrew. So we met, I mean, on the internet, we met, I mean, met at a call online. I think it was maybe January of 2020 before COVID started. Loved the idea, loved, loved him. And we began working on it. When COVID started, my, my schedule got wiped for travel, business and personal. All of a sudden, I had a lot more time and was at home and like everyone else, you know, spraying groceries with alcohol and learning about UV sanitizers <laughs> and all the yesteryear chaos of COVID. <laughs> and that also brought me a lot of time to spend with him. And so we we worked on a proof of concept. He got a partner and I, I brought a partner as well. Four of us are co-founders. And we incorporated the business in November of 2020. And the first product um, we built was an algorithm meant to predict who was most likely to, to, to look for their next job. Originally, we meant to sell this to recruiters. We were running a case study on the algorithm, trying to train it. And this was, I think, you know, November to December timeframe of 2020. And what we detected was a huge amount of pent up turnover. We saw these, we have a scoring system that predicts how likely someone is to look for a new job. And we saw really high scores across the board, like we hadn't seen early in 2020. And what we realized was either our algorithm was very broken, or <laughs> we had some sort of prediction that really, that, that wasn't clear to us what it was. So, you know, we spent a couple of weeks arguing with each other and, you know, who broke the algorithm and what was the last, you know, code thing you pushed to GitHub <laughs> and, you know, who, who did what. But what we realized was we had 
detected what became the Great Resignation early. And so we pivoted um, in the winter of 2020 to employee retention, and we decided to make a commitment as a company at HR Signal to use big data ethically for good, which is both to help employers retain employees, not help recruiters you know, poach and, and, and sort of um, pull people out of organizations and use our data to help people grow in their careers faster and better at their current place of work. And so what we have built is a algorithm and a workforce insights engine where we look at, uh, we now have billions of data points spanning many, many years of, of data. And we're able to understand more than 50,000 different job titles, the trends of talent development internally at a company versus change employers each time you change uh, job titles. And we have sort of cracked the nut on people analytics um, and predictive analytics for career outcomes. So we raise capital to, to sort of uh, scale up our team. And we actually just launched out of stealth mode about six weeks ago. Wow, a lot of a lot of things I want to ask you about here. Maybe we'll we'll take the the ending and and work our way back through some of those. You mentioned stealth mode. Now you know in in a public place about it, it's a conversation I find really interesting and, and one I've actually been having with a few folks. But you know, perhaps the the reigning business wisdom is that you know ideas are a dime a dozen, and it's all about execution uh, at the end of the day. And you know, I think that's that's the that's the the wisdom you'll find if you go and, and Google it. I find myself somewhere else on the spectrum in, in that I think some ideas are better than other ideas. <laughs> and I, this is working towards the idea of stealth mode because in some competitive environments, you know, maybe ideas are worth protecting where you have maybe large enterprises who, for the sake of this conversation, maybe have unlimited resources to throw at ideas relative to a, a resource constrained startup who's who's still figuring it out overall, but kind of fascinated by this whole approach of stealth mode and would love to understand you know why you opted for it. What what did you see as the advantages or disadvantages too? You know, reflecting on it now that you're in a, a place, a public place to explore those ideas. Sure. So initially, you know, we were kind of at the frontier of predictive analytics ourselves. There wasn't uh, there wasn't a competitor doing what we were doing even close initially when we had the idea. So we felt sort of a corporate social responsibility of like, we need to make sure it works and make sure it's accurate because it has really big implications to tell an employer, Hey, you know, I think this person, you know, could, could leave if they don't grow in their career at your company. We take that seriously. We don't, we don't do that lightly. So we, launched a private beta in May of 2021 to get customer feedback, test our algorithm, test our product, or, or at least our first version of the product. And we felt like doing that in a closed loop system of a, of a, of a private stealth mode beta um, was best because if we had a problem with it, we could fix it without public inspection. And if it worked, it would allow us to move faster and iterate and not be sort of beholden to uh, changing our website messaging or redoing our social media every time we want to pivot or adopt a new feature or remove a feature. So it helped us stay lean and focus just on the product and just on product market fit. Further, we had a consideration to make around intellectual property. 
We could try to go after process type patents, or we could have trade secrets and try to use, you know, market share and commercial advantage to defend ourselves instead of spend, you know, lots of money seeking patents to protect our ideas. And so ultimately we talked to a lot of lawyers, did a lot of research, and it felt like the upside of the pathway to IP would either be too expensive or too time consuming to get to market with what we wanted to do, or we'd have to raise more capital. And it felt more lean and more sort of uh, innovative to just build the product and go to market with it. And if someone wants to reverse engineer it, they will, but they'll have to, you know, we'll have a start on it. And so, you know, not to uh, make this about Elon Musk, but, you know, he, you, you can listen to interviews <laughs> with him about the same topic of what they're doing at Tesla and SpaceX, and they don't patent for the same reason. It's, it's just to focus on the work of the work and try and win in the commercial sort of marketplace, not win in a courtroom. So we made that decision, but, but there's, there's a big con. And the con is you have huge public companies that are in the space of HR software, Workday and SAP uh, Success Factors and uh, many others. And ultimately, we expect them to either try to knock off some of what we're doing or, or try and buy us at some point because, you know, we, will, we believe that people analytics and predictive analytics on workforce will be ubiquitous a couple of years from now. So, you know, it's sort of like uh, stealth mode has helped us to move quickly and understand things about the market and the product and customers. And now that we've launched, sort of the clock starts on our our, comp- our competition, knowing what we're doing and how we're doing it somewhat. And so we uh, we wanted to be well prepared for that. And that's, what, that's why we spent a couple of years in stealth mode. Got it. Well, I want to ask about the heart of it, because I think the, the crux of the problem you're trying to solve is, is so fascinating. How do you actually, not to ask you for the trade secret, but (laughs) that you just described as the competitive advantage, but how do you predict which employees are most likely to be at risk of leaving? And, you know, the higher level question there being around predictive analytics more generally with billions of data points, what are, where's the signal from the noise? Like what are the, what are the variables that, that matter that help you make these kinds of predictions? So we look at more than 200 different types of data. The data falls into three categories. We look at peer career pathing data. So we have anonymously an- analyzed more than 400 million um, unique career paths. This is you know data like position and company and length of time and what was before that and what was before that. Uh, what type of education did this person have? And this peer data is one of three uh, data types that helps us to understand benchmarks and patterns. The second data type is public data. This is information published by governments, um, so like BLS data, um, mandatory IRS filings, public company earnings reports and news and uh, reports that get released. Um, we look at all sorts of public information and alternative data. And finally, we look at market data. So we're looking or we're buying data on verified pay on surveyed pay. We're buying data from job posts. So uh, how much is advertised in a position? Um, How many job posts are there for a certain job in a certain region? And how long do those positions take to fill? So fundamentally, we are taking all of this data together and 
we're analyzing it and looking for correlation and causation. We take more than 200 factors um, and they all vary per position and per person, per company, per region. And it generates a score. The score is between one and 99%. And we call it our retention risk score. And this retention risk score is a likelihood for the person to, to no longer be retained, to seek a new position, whether it's internally or externally is up to the employer. And so if it's 99%, our algorithm is saying with all but 100% certainty that this person is going to seek a new position soon. We, we say within 90 days, typically that means when we say seek, it doesn't mean leave. So, so call it three to six months. When the score is 1%, it's a one in 100 chance that someone would be a retention risk. And so we generate these scores for our customers, but we also generate these scores just to test the algorithm and train it. And so the way that it works uh, is sort of uh, proprietary. I can't divulge that, um, but that's sort of how it works. Does that make sense? It, it does. My my mind, for for better or for worse, and you can help me understand which one, goes to the precogs of Minority Report, except in the context of employment where <laughs> those those in charge can have a sense of what might come. And you've already touched a bit on this, but it, it, it's, it is a, a sensitive application, I, I think, of this data. Maybe concerns both from employees and what is the right way for employers to, to actually use this data and in what ways, how has the reception been to, to you know, rolling this out at scale, what what have been some of those concerns? How do you how do you think about those? Sure. So you know, ultimately, our predictive analytics roll up to to a single function when it comes to employee retention. When you get hired at a job and you're interviewing for a job, people who are interviewing you ask you questions like, "What do you like working on? Do you like what you're doing right now? Where do you want to be in one year, two years, five years?" Um, questions like that. Not often do those questions get asked again. Innocently, um, they might be asked when paired with a performance review once a year, and so we find that in general, corporate America uh, loses track of the individual nature of career paths. And so, uh, there's a, a, a tool called a, a stay interview, and a stay interview is when uh, you're asking questions like you would when you were interviewed, but it's not to leave the employer, but it's to stay. The problem is with these stay interviews is ideally you would ask every single employee at your organization once a month, maybe once a quarter, uh, how are they doing? Do they like the projects they're working on? Do they feel like it's helping them develop to their next position? When do they think they're going to be looking for their next position and what would they want it to be? More individual work? Uh, would you like to move into leadership? Do you no longer like leadership and you want to be an individual contributor again? But organizations don't have capacity to have this conversation with every employee every month or even every quarter. So what HR Signals predictive analytics are doing, ultimately this retention risk score is about saying, hey, go talk to this person now and ask them these questions. And the purpose of these questions is to figure out if you, the employer, are not providing what they, the employee, needs to be happy where they are currently and to be developing towards their next promotion. So for us, you, you, you ask the question of, you know, how is it received and, you know, minority report, whatever. I mean, we're not, 
you know, the, the purpose of the analytics and the usage of the analytics is not to pick who to arrest before the crime happens, but rather to use the prediction to offer someone a path that they may not know is there to speak to leadership in HR um, or to speak to leadership of their leadership, uh, meaning they're like boss's boss, and understand what growth path and how much of an intent for growth their employer has for them. And so many people, and there's a, um, there's a societal opinion that younger generations, call it people who are in their 20s now and 30s now, maybe early 40s, are job hoppers and go from job to job to job without loyalty. And you can even hear recruiters and HR people who've been in the game for a long time say this. Oh, I look at a, you know, someone with 10 years of work experience and I know they've had eight jobs or something. We have looked at the data. We looked at the data back to the 90s and there has been a decrease in the way that people grow and are promoted internally at employers. We see in the data that leadership positions, when managers and supervisors and chiefs and directors are hired, more today than in the past, they're hired externally, meaning from a recruiter, from another company, and leadership positions are filled with, you know, of course, the best of intentions that companies have, which is to find the best person for the job. But it's it's a two-way street. And so when you work at a company and they're hiring a director that you might want that position and you would report to that position if you don't get that position. And you see that they don't hire you or any of your coworkers, but instead they hire somebody from your competitor. The logical conclusion as an employee that I would have is, well, maybe I need to do the same thing. If I want to be a director, I should apply to that competitor that we just hired from to go get the director job over there. And so we believe that we have the data to back it as well, that there is a fix that can be made to talent development and career paths. And in fact, um, when people leave an employer and start a new employer, whether they got a promotion or not, it's hard. You have to learn new things, new systems, new people, new friendships, new relationships, new commute, new cafeteria, whatever it is. And it can be tough. In fact, it'd be easier to grow at your current job but you're not in charge of your own promotion. And so at HR Signal, we're trying to use this data to help employers to be more proactive with talent development promotions and an employee-centric focus on their own people today to help them grow and be the the leadership and the promotions and the people that they need in the future. And so uh, we're trying to use this, this algorithm, this data for good and in the employee retention space, there's competitors. There's competitors of ours that are doing key logging and network monitoring and application use monitoring, trying to predict uh, whether people are even working and whether people are likely to quit. That's not us. We're not spyware or tattleware. Rather, we're trying to use this data to help employers treat employees better. Wow. That also introduces a lot of a lot of questions there. But I love, just, just to layer on one other piece to the the puzzle to consider uh, is that, I mean, as hard and expensive as hiring is, it is significantly more deleterious to the business to lose someone who you've spent time to onboard and to to invest in for, for those folks to leave. 
And so, you know, to, to play the angels advocate to the minority report side, as, as a, as a person, I, I, the severity of this problem is a, it's a really big deal. It is. And, and that motivated us to focus on employee retention over recruiting, you know, two years ago, more than two years ago now. And we didn't even really understand this until we got into the HR industry, like uh, myself, our co-founders, there's a lot of research around the cost of turnover and it's estimated to be between 50% to double the salary of the person who quits that the employer wasn't expecting to quit, like voluntary turnover. That cost variable is based on three factors. One, you have the replacement effort, um, which is you know hiring and recruiting and that whole process of finding a new person. But in the meantime, when that person leaves two weeks, four weeks, or maybe the day that they quit, their job has to be filled by other people, their coworkers, their supervisor, the people around them. And that productivity loss and adoption of other knowledge and tacit knowledge that people don't have, that costs money. The hiring process costs money. And then when you hire someone new, they don't have training, they don't have context, they don't have tacit knowledge. And so that training can be two weeks, it can be six months, it can be two years, depending on the position. And so there's a cost savings with HR signal, which is really significant. And especially because of the great resignation and everything that happened with turnover in 2021 and 2022, it has brought to the forefront of every CFO and CEO and CHRO and uh, anybody in, in, in HR and finance and leadership, the true cost of turnover has been felt because so many companies had so much of it that everyone understood what it, what the burn, uh, what the pain is from that. So I want to ask about actually some of those macro kind of trends like the the great resignation there's been a handful of these buzzwords that have emerged over <laughs> the last few months from quiet quitting and right like the, the, those kinds of things but but even more practically you know the trends like pay transparency that you know perhaps didn't exist when you began looking at this data that that now exists today and so i imagine you can begin to you know understand what the implications of some of these developments actually are how are you thinking about even like take something like pay transparency as a as a potential you know factor in the in the analysis here? How do you think about those those kinds of things? So we get paid transparency disclosed data from job posts that we buy. We see the data. It's not for every state yet. It's it's a it's a handful of states. Most of the employers, their compliance of it is kind of annoyingly opaque in the sense that uh, you post a job and you might have a salary range of sixty to $120,000 a year posted as the, That's as a big the range. range. <laughs> so, um, you know, one of them might feed a family of four. <laughs> the other one is, you know, not the job for me kind of thing. So there's a, a challenge with compliance there because it doesn't have to be a one number. And in general, pay transparency is a great thing. We think that uh, there's a huge stride to be made in diversity and, and equity. And so we actually, we designed our algorithm and all of our career pathing data. We ignore all demographics, age, gender, ethnicity, location is, is included as, as a factor, but all of the typical sort of demographic elements of, of a DEI, we have stripped out. So that when we look at the career pathing data for a role, for a person, we're looking at 
outcomes at large, not outcomes for their demographic. And so interestingly, pay transparency is is one factor, but you know, you look at turnover rates or past turnover rates and um and data reports in most HR information systems, all from the biggest you know, companies in the world that sell them, the default way you look at turnover data is going to look at it by gender and by age, by ethnicity sometimes. And so, you know, we are trying to remove the biases. You know, if you ask, if you filter data by a certain uh, demographic or taxonomy, you will produce an insight or an output, which is colored by that filter. So we try to remove filters as a way of removing biases from the system. And so pay transparency helps to reveal pay bans, but it's not perfect because of the aforementioned large ranges. So you you had mentioned some of the prevailing narratives, uh, I think, that you know, we're, we're told about the, the HR landscape, like the job hopping one. Are there other kind of large misconceptions that we have at this societal narrative level where what you guys have been able to find in the data doesn't quite match what our perception is of the reality of, of the situation in the workplace? So analyzing all of the different career paths that we have has allowed us to separate uh, trend data from position to position in a, in a career growth trajectory of staying at the same company and going from promotion to promotion versus changing companies each time you get a promotion. What we've figured out for some positions, not all positions, that counterintuitively, in fact, you're more likely to be promoted growing at the current company you're at. And in fact, in the majority of job titles, the majority, um, I, I, sh- I shouldn't say that. I guess the majority that I've looked at, because I haven't looked at the data for all 50,000 positions, but the ones that I have. Personally, I can get the real answer for you. Maybe you can put it in the show notes later. But yeah, the majority of positions, if you change employer, you're going to be hired in the same job title, not promoted when you change jobs. Meaning, if you're a sales manager, you're going to be a sales manager. You, you get a new job, you're going to be a sales manager at a different company. If you're a software engineer, you're likely to stay in the same position, software engineer, when you get hired by a new company. And in fact, counterintuitively, while growth seems to be what happens when you leave jobs, the data speaks otherwise. And so that sort of uh, common reprise that you got to, you know, up or out is more like sort of a, a, a phrase than, than reality. Emerging from stealth mode, you've, you've raised some capital, you've set out in this direction. What does the path forward looks like? What, what has you most excited about what's coming next as you think about this retention problem? So we've been lucky. We launched and got our story released by TechCrunch and Fast Company and Cranes and Business First and other publications. We got a lot of coverage. And that's, I think, the goal of any launch. And with that launch has brought us many new opportunities uh, with customers, with partnerships, with investors. And, and we're in a place where we're trying to move very fast on, on sort of everything all at once. Um, and what I mean is that we're building more product features every sprint, every week. 
We are onboarding customers. We're trying to, we've forged partnerships. We're trying to forge more partnerships that are oriented around mass distribution of HR signal, mass reach as fast as possible. For example, we're partnering with other HR consulting firms, sort of like agencies, but but they sell HR consulting services to bring our platform to their clients and also get access to our, our insights for their clients, which gives them more information to help consult to be better at, you know, really executing their consulting. And so we're in a, a sort of a commercialization focus right now where we're trying to reach as many companies in the market uh, as fast and as wide as possible. Uh, and we're doing it both in the U.S. and Canada. So um, two, two, two countries at once. The focus on retention, do, do you envision other areas under the, the people operations responsibilities that, that you can begin to, to work on? So our new platform that we launched out of stealth mode is not just our retention risk, uh, predictive analytics uh, piece of it. We also have benchmarking and a lot of uh, talent development reports and insights on career path and market data. So we're not just focused on sort of the core issue of employee retention, but also talent development and workforce planning. Those features are, are, are built into our platform. We tried to deliver sort of all of the data you would need to have a really well-prepared employee performance review or employee talent, talent development meeting. And so fundamentally, we are really trying to not just focus on, on retention, but in general, uh, if you develop employees well, if you have the best data, come prepared for every you know, performance review as a supervisor or an HR person, and you're doing a really good job helping to develop your team and, and give them the attention they deserve, likely they won't ever need to be retained in the sense that we are um, detecting it with our algorithm. So our hope is that customers that adopt HR Signal end up using more of our talent development and um, bespoke analytics for each employee uh, data to empower better employment outcomes um, natively, culturally, instead of acutely sort of addressing a, a risk that we that we send them an alert and say, hey, go go talk to this person now because we think there's a risk here. That that should be a, an acute problem that reduces over time through through proper usage of our platform. Mm. So so with that broader vision in mind. What does success ultimately look like from your perspective? You know, like what is the the kind of impact that you would like to have at large across companies at scale? So going back to Vividfront, we've had years where there was zero or or nearly only one person who voluntarily, um, you know, was quitting. Right, that retention rate and talent development at at Vividfront is a testament to the culture. And in fact, you can look at the retention, uh, the turnover rate versus the internal mobility rate. Internal mobility is um, the percentage of people who are, are changing positions promoted. And the turnover rate is the number of people who, who left, right? Of any reason, voluntary turnover being of just the people that quit. You can look at these ratios at an organization and understand how healthy the culture is, how much it's growing people within versus a revolving door. 
And so my vision and our vision as co-founders of HR Signal is to help more companies be better at retaining, developing talent, growing people from within so that we can build a healthier corporate America where people have to leave less jobs to get what they deserve and companies can spend more resources on developing their, their people and less resources on hiring and turnover and recruiters and try to make the whole ecosystem healthier. We hope that for companies that, that use our platform, that they outperform their competitors because they're using our, our insights, our data, our predictions uh, to improve their culture, improve their career paths, and, and improve their employee experience. And that's that's our grand vision. That's that's why we we started this, and that's what will motivate us for, for years to come. That's awesome. I think so often we talk about the importance of culture, and I think it's rare that there's a semblance of how to begin to think about not that you're quantifying it, but but that you can you can leverage it as a as an actual asset in the company, for sure. And I, and I think that in, in that way. And I think again, we've had a gift of the great resignation because it's exposed this weakness that you know companies. If the people leave, you know that's that's the company, right? Most companies aren't running you know some machine in the back room that's stamping out <laughs> widgets, but rather it's a bunch of people doing stuff. And if those people leave. The company is crippled. So people matter and treating employees well is really important. Yeah, it, it always comes back to people. It's the it's the theme of this podcast. Amen. <laughs> well, I, I want to ask a little bit about the the journey itself for, for you, having kind of been through this process a, a few times now. Are there things that that you have done differently with HR Signal that then you had done before? And you know what are some of those lessons that that you've taken with you from Vivifront and prior, and and then also some of the things that you've still learned in this new journey. It's been a huge contrast to go from you know a company for for fourteen fifteen years trying to delegate and build you know roles and people that do things and narrow what I what I spend my time on to then being in a startup where I wear ten hats a, a day. I'm, you know, janitor, garbage man, you know, all of the sort of uh, things that you would outsource if you if you if you weren't uh, trying to conserve resources and spend investor dollars wisely, right? So founders do everything, everything they possibly can to push the venture forward and reduce expenses. And so, for me, it's been a huge culture shift and one that I've incredibly enjoyed because I listen. You know, I'm, I like technology and entrepreneurship and all this kind of stuff. And if I could make a living that I felt was my, my goal for earning potential, working with my hands, doing automotive work or woodworking, the passions that I enjoy outside of, of work, um, I would prefer to do that. I, I don't really like sitting at a computer, working on a screen, hunched over like, like you know, soft problems. I would rather work with my hands. <laughs> But you can't make money while you sleep working with your hands. And so uh, for me, you know, I have enjoyed getting back into the trench and grinding at the sort of founder trench level. And uh, it's been very refreshing because in Vividfront, you know, my job, especially for the last five years, was to get out of the way and to be extremely focused on on having other people do responsibilities and do them well, trusting them to do them well. 
but now it's complete opposite. So that's been a huge shift. I've really enjoyed it. I think that's a a really interesting reflection on it because it, you know the, the the path will ultimately lead you back towards some of the experiences at Vivid Front eventually. Of course, it's just a different life cycle of <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but you know, to your to your earlier question of uh, what will I do differently this time? You know, I've made a lot of mistakes and I've learned from them. So we know, you know, where to invest time solving a problem and when to, you know, hire the expert. You know, we 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 know that while we probably could, you know, save money running our own hardware and, and private cloud and infrastructure, it's better to just use Google or Amazon web services and outsource those things. And so, you know, if I'd started HR Signal 15 years ago, I'd have a loud humming server rack of equipment that I'd be running to save money on all of the computing resources and and machine learning and AI crunching that we're doing. Um, but I know now that that's not how you spend your time. It's not going to result in, in revenue or an exit. Uh, you have to outsource that and to cloud providers. And so it's, it's like uh, decisions like that where we really have the benefit of of not just um, my past experience, but uh, one of my co-founders uh, grew a, a family business to the point of it becoming rather large and selling it to private equity. And then private equity chose him to keep running it after they bought it. His name is Aaron Goodman. He's our, our COO. And, you know, he by my side, both of us as you know, executives and leaders in, in other businesses for 15 plus years before this, you know, we take those experiences into HR Signal, that maturity of leadership. And so um, that's helped us to make less mistakes, I think, as a company. And we benefit from that tacit knowledge, that past experience. And um, hopefully, you know, it takes me less than, less than say, th- 13 years to get out of the day-to-day operations of HR Signal. We'll see. Right. Maybe, maybe less than the, than the days of, of, of sloopy menus. Exactly. <laughs> Cool. Well, I want to round it out here, and and before we get to our, our closing question, just leave space for anything you think that is important that we we haven't touched on yet. I don't think we've touched on starting multiple businesses in Cleveland. Yes, this is a question. So we we raised venture capital and and met with investors all over the world, and so with HR Signal, the question came up. You know, why why is the company headquartered in Cleveland? And, you know, like, why are you even living in Cleveland? Like questions like that. And, and uh, <laughs> personally, you know, I lived in New York City and I know you're from New York as well. And I came back to Cleveland to start a family. Uh, my wife and I, uh, she's also from the Midwest. And we were, you know, kind of seeing our friends start families in New York and it looked hard and, and expensive. And we wanted to have it a little bit easier of a ride on the, on the family front so we could uh, focus, you know, our energy on career as well. In Cleveland, you have this spirit of uh, overcoming and can-do and grittiness, and you have the support structures and the resources that big cities have, but you can get to them easier here. We have incredible support from state leadership and county and city leadership for entrepreneurship. We have you know, one of the most successful state, partially state-funded VCs and Jumpstart right in our back, backyard. And so, you know, we see a healthy ecosystem. Ultimately, uh, the roles that I've hired at Vividfront over the years of software engineering and 
design and marketing and sales and all of this, um, similar positions will be hired at HR Signal and will keep being hired at HR Signal as we grow. And so I know that you can do it in Cleveland. And so having grown Vivitron in Cleveland, I know that it's an economy that has the talent, that has the support um, to do it. And you get more bang for your buck. And so um, for those reasons, uh, we really think that it, it, it's been a great decision to, to put our U.S. headquarters in Cleveland. We do have another office overseas in Tel Aviv. It's our uh, R&D subsidiary. And so my two co-founders that are in Israel are running another office there with separate employees and, and, and everything uh, there as well. But as we grow, a lot more of the hiring will be in Cleveland as well, because this is where, you know, our customer success team and customer service and sales and all of the sort of administrative stuff will be and, and we'll, you know, continue to do R&D mostly from, from, from Israel. Wow. Yeah, no, that's awesome. I appreciate you, you bringing that up because we can, we can also keep it there in Cleveland and, and round it out here by uh, asking you for your favorite hidden gem in the area. I think Cleveland is full of many hidden gems. And I'll, I'll, I'll say this, living in New York City and having access to the culinary landscape uh, was amazing. I'm, I'm a foodie. My wife's a foodie. We love finding, you know, whether it's fine dining or the next hole in the wall, weird place to, to that, you know, is, is amazing at something. Uh, Cleveland punches above its weight in, in many areas. But Superior Pho, which is uh, near and dear to my heart, continues to be one of my my favorite gems in the city because I think they have the best bowl of soup and perhaps the best sandwich. Uh, though I do like a, you know, like a Slimans corned beef as well. But uh, the mm. banh mi at Superior Pho is, is amazing. And I think that would be my, my gem recommendation. Awesome. Well, Andrew, I just want to thank you again uh, for, for taking the time and for, for coming on to, to share your story. Jeffrey, thanks for the opportunity. Uh, love Lay of the Land. And uh, keep up the great work. I appreciate the reach and visibility uh, that you provide entrepreneurs in Cleveland. Thank you. I appreciate that as well. If if people had uh, anything they wanted to follow up with you about, what would be the, the best way for them to do so? Sure. Um, you can reach me on LinkedIn, Andrew Spot, S-P-O-T-T. You can email me, Andrew at hrsignal.com or uh, Google my name. You'll, you'll find me. There's another Andrew spot, but but uh, but I'm <laughs> the only one in Cleveland. So. You, you got him on the SEO there. Awesome. <laughs> well, thank you, Andrew. Thank you, Jeffrey. That's all for this week. Thank you for listening. We'd love to hear your thoughts on today's show. So if you have any feedback, please send over an email to jeffrey at layoftheland.fm or find us on Twitter at podlayoftheland or at sternhefe, J-E-F-E. If you or someone you know would make a good guest for our show, please reach out as well and let us know. And if you enjoy the podcast, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or on your preferred podcast player. Your support goes a long way to help us spread the word and continue to bring the Cleveland founders and builders we love having on the show. We'll be back here next week at the same time to map more of the land. The Lay of the Land podcast was developed in collaboration with the Up Company LLC. At the time of this recording, unless otherwise indicated, we do not own equity or other financial interests in the company which appear on this show. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of any entity which employs us. 
This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Thank you for listening and we'll talk to you next week.